This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker, uh, Bill Kimball, couldn't make it, but we, he sent a video. And so I'll ask Kent to show you the video. He'll keep to his time more easily this way. Good afternoon, everyone. Sorry I can't be with you this weekend but I'm pleased to be able to talk to you about paleoanthropology, specifically what we know, what we think we know, and what we've yet to fully understand about human evolution from the point of view of the fossil record. Obviously, given the time constraint, I can't be comprehensive, but I'll try to be general rather than highly specific. I'll identify a few obstacles along the way and end with a short prescription for overcoming them. Perhaps the one thing we're most sure of about human origins doesn't actually come from the fossil record, and that is that chimpanzees and humans are more closely related to one another than either is to gorillas and other primates. This insight, of course, comes from the molecular evidence, but is a central backdrop to any interpretation of the hominin fossil record. We're fairly sure that the human-chimp divergence occurred in the late Miocene, but that date has moved back some due to recent work on the slowdown of the molecular clock within hominoids and genome-wide analysis of variation and substitution rates. These dates are consistent with the known fossil record of early hominins. But nothing in the molecular record can give us the chronicle of events, what happened, when, where, and why, along the path from the last common ancestor to modern humans. For this, we need strategically programmed fieldwork and a well-sampled, precisely calibrated fossil record. Here, I've added to the statement of relationships two fossil taxa, Artipithecus and Australopithecus, that contribute critical parts of the chronicle. Now, I'm pretty confident in the basal position of Artipithecus relative to Australopithecus and Homo, though I recognize some hesitation on this point by some in our field. And the position of Australopithecus as a close relative of humans hasn't been seriously debated since the mid-1950s. Currently, Artipithecus tells us that a trio of characters, part-time bipedality, a broad, short cranial base with a centrally located frame and magnum, and small non-honing canine teeth are foundational specializations of the hominin clade. From the Artipithecus perspective, Australopithecus appears to have undergone a radical makeover with a number of features such as lithic technology, a significantly enlarged brain, and an expanded dietary niche that we've historically associated with the Homo lineage. In my judgment, though, the adaptive transition from Australopithecus to Homo is modest by comparison to that between Artipithecus and Australopithecus. Now, it's become fashionable to attribute all of these changes and more speciations, extinctions, net changes in taxonomic diversity, the appearance of biological as well as technological innovations, to high amplitude variation in global climatic cycles during the Pliocene and Pleistocene, within a strong trend towards cooler, drier conditions, as read from paleoclimate proxies in deep sea cores. But early hominins weren't adapting to climate change. They responded to changes in local environmental conditions in the interior of continents, where habitats were variably buffered against external influences by tectonic and other local to regional scale forces to a degree we're just beginning to comprehend. The problem is basic. 
we do not have a full understanding of how large-scale climate change mediated shifts and patterns of early hominin diversity, adaptation and geographic distribution on regional and local scales across deep time. And we need to have this understanding if we're to make progress in answering any of these key questions. I think the obstacles to solving this problem lie in three broad areas. Problems of diversity, problems of sampling, and problems of scale. None of these is a particularly new problem, but they are persistent. One of the pivotal climatic episodes occurred around 2.6 million years ago, with an increase in high-amplitude climatic shifts within a global cooling trend. A popular interpretation of the hominin fossil record suggests that there was a notable increase in species diversity as a response to the trend. And indeed, according to a high species diversity scenario shown here, there were perhaps eight species that originated within the half million year interval following the onset of the cooling trend. However, note that the time period just prior to 2.5 million years is very sparsely populated by hominins compared to the periods on either side. There is really only one well-sampled species from this period, A. africanus of southern Africa. East Africa has been recalcitrant, despite a lot of teams looking. And so we really don't know if the sudden diversity after 2.5 million is real or is merely an artifact of the gap in the record. But another challenge is that paleoanthropologists are not in broad agreement on the number of species that existed at particular periods of time. Take, for example, the 3.5 to 3 million year period on the other side of the gap. The high diversity scenario shows five to six separate species in this period. Some paleoanthropologists, though, see no more than two on the evaluation of the very same evidence. Now, it's been suggested that this debate is analogous to asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Who cares how many species existed in the fossil record? But to the contrary, if the diversity before 2.5 million was similar to that after 2.5 million, then it would be difficult to argue that climate change was especially important in generating increased diversity on the heels of global cooling event. So figuring out ancient diversity does matter to the kinds of questions we ask. Part of the problem is that not everyone uses the same approach or methods in their evaluation of the fossils. I'm a big fan of George Gaylord Simpson's scheme for inferring the existence of fossil species. We start with an assemblage of collected fossils, our sample, which I must add, especially for the older part of the record, is almost always time averaged on the scale of hundreds to tens of thousands of years, even in well-dated contexts. So expecting our sample to reflect a single population on a single landscape or ecological circumstance is usually not reasonable. But from the sample, we need next to infer something about the parameters of the population from which the sample was drawn. Here, we need to take into account the possibility of change over time and geographic variation, among other factors. This is a critical step. It distinguishes a truly evolutionary approach from pre-evolutionary typology, but it's a step that is too often neglected. And then, depending on which species concept we adopt, biological, evolutionary, or phylogenetic, we might make the inference that our sample represents a population deserving to become a formally named twig on the tree of life, a species. Now, this is a deliberate simplification, to be sure, 
But the point I want to make is that too often the intermediate step, the most difficult one for paleoanthropology, is skipped, leading to the naming of species based on very minor morphological deviations from other previously recognized species. I estimate that if Simpson's formula were rigorously applied to the hominin fossil record, perhaps 20 to 25 percent of the currently named species would lose their identities as independent twigs on the tree of life. And some of my colleagues would argue that I'm still not being conservative enough. Now I want to say a few words about another major obstacle, one that does not have to do with our handling of the evidence per se, but instead concerns the disjunction between the scale of the questions we ask and the scale of the evidence we use to attempt to answer them. And here I want to acknowledge Kay Berensmeyer, the National Museum of Natural History, whose important work on this subject deserves much better treatment than what I can offer in the next few minutes. Here are plotted the spatiotemporal realms of some of the major questions we ask about the hominid fossil record, ranging from the truly global scale, on the order of hundreds of thousands to millions of years of time, to similarly large spatial scales, down to what we might call local or ecological scale questions concerning population responses to environmental change. Many of the phenomena of human evolution we wish to explain are located on the ecological scale, speciation, population dispersals, origins of adaptations, etc. Accordingly, it would be extremely helpful if at least some of the evidence from the fossil record aligned with those questions. Unfortunately, for the bulk of the record, that is not the case. On the ecological scale in which many of our most interesting questions reside, we're usually shortchanged when it comes to the data. We are squeezed between, on the one hand, the spatially narrow window afforded by individual localities monitored over relatively short time spans, snapshots really, and, on the other hand, faunal assemblages that are almost always temporally mixed across landscapes, aggregating individuals from different biological populations and ecological conditions. Well, this sure sounds like a gloomy prospect for paleoanthropology. But there are exceptional cases, like my colleague Curtis Marion's excavations in South Africa, where one of his cave sites preserves a continuous, exquisitely detailed, virtually landscape-scale paleoclimatic and archaeological record of Middle Stone Age humans in a coastal marine setting between around 90 and 50,000 years ago. The sequence includes traces of the mammoth Toba volcanic eruption and presents a rare opportunity to study how early humans responded to an environmental crisis in ecological time. But this is, as I say, an unusual circumstance. So where should we go from here? I offer a short list of agenda items that by no means exhausts the list of important tasks for the next generation of paleoanthropologists. It's trite to say, but we need more evidence from the past. But we need to be strategic in where we invest precious funding resources to maximize the value of new information from fresh paleontological and archaeological discoveries. I have my own favorite gap in the African fossil record between three and two million years ago, but there are others equally worthy of time and resources, like the entire Pleistocene of Central Asia, for example. I'm going to sound awfully old-fashioned here, but students in human origin science need more rigorous training in the basic principles of zoological systematics. Systematics is the bridge between the field and the laboratory, and I think paleoanthropology as a branch of the natural sciences will suffer by ignoring it. 
A major step forward would be greater cooperation and collaboration between field research teams on questions of regional or even continental scope. The tradition of siloed field projects working in complete isolation from one another, even when separated by only a few kilometers, makes no sense given the need for broadly integrative, scaled-up approaches to the key questions about our past. And related to this last point, we need fresh approaches to field and analytical research that explicitly address the disjunction between the scales of our research questions and the evidence we extract from the Earth. To finish, I'll cite one recent example of this approach. The hominin sites in Paleo Lakes drilling project, established in the late 2000s, consists of more than 100 scientists from 11 countries who are working together to drill, analyze, and interpret long cores from East African Rift Valley Paleo Lake beds proximate to early hominin sites. The goal of this work is to create a continuous high-resolution paleoclimate link between the global-scale data from deep sea cores and the record of hominin evolution retrieved from local sedimentary sequences in the Rift Valley. This is important work and a model for how large integrated projects can move paleoanthropology forward. With that, I thank you for your attention. Again, I'm sorry I couldn't be with you, but I hope this gives you some food for thought as CARTA charts its next 10 years. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.